0: Welcome back, everyone, to the next episode of If the Cleat Fits. I'm Kyle O'Brien, and we have a lot to talk about today. First and foremost, we got to talk about the Super Bowl recap. Um, Before I dive into Kansas City and the disaster that they were, I first want to acknowledge Tampa Bay and what they did. First, starting with Tom Brady, not necessarily what he did in the game, but what he did six months before the game. Because when he joined Tampa Bay, they already had a loaded roster. We knew that. We knew they had a good offensive line. We knew they had a good good weapons on offense. We knew they had a good defense. Um, they were really just a Tom Brady away from making a playoff push, right? Well, we need to take note of the fact that every single player that scored a single point for Tampa Bay in this game came after he got there. Tom got Rob Gronkowski to come out of retirement when they already had O.J. Howard, they already had Cameron Brate. There's no reason to add another tight end, especially a guy like Gronkowski, who is old and out of his prime, arguably, um, especially with a year off of football. Um, But that's Tom's go-to guy. That's his trusted weapon in uh, New England. And Tampa Bay... Uh, gave him that power to bring a guy like that in and pay him. Um, And what did it do for him? Well, he scored two touchdowns in the Super Bowl. So no matter what he did in the regular season, no matter matter what he did in the playoffs, it all paid off last Sunday. And then you look at a guy like Antonio Brown, a guy that Bruce Arians declared there was no shot that he was going to play for Tampa Bay, but Tom Brady pushed for him. And the end result is... He played pretty well since he got there, and he scores a touchdown in the Super Bowl. And then you look at Leonard Fournette. They already brought in LaShawn McCoy before the season started. They already had Ronald Jones, who they really liked. Um, And I don't know how much power Tom Brady had in acquiring him, necessarily, but he did, in fact, come after. um, And he added another element to that offense, a more power run game, that proved to be... Honestly, one of the biggest reasons why Tampa Bay won that game in the second half, they were able to pound the ball, um, tire out that defense because they had no they had no business tackling him. They didn't want to. They were tired. And when it comes to that point in a ball game where you can just run your power back straight up the middle of the field, um, it exploits defenses. And with that being the situation that they were in with that lead, there was no shot in Kansas City coming back or stopping that offense, regardless. So, and then you throw in Ryan Suckup. I mean, I, I don't. I I strongly do not believe that Tom Brady had any input in acquiring him. I mean, he's just the kicker. But it's just fun to note that he did as well. Come after the Tom Brady got there, and um, all four of those guys were the only people scoring the ball game. Um, and I also want to throw in Tristan Wirfs, the guy they drafted in the first round. Again, I don't know how much input Tom Brady had in acquiring him. I'm assuming none, but um, they did need to fill that la- that tackle position, and because um, they knew that now that they have Tom Brady, they all they have to do is protect him, and he'll do the rest. So I think that's a pretty crazy stat to to think about the fact that everyone has scored for Tampa Bay. Every single point that they scored came from a player that came from Tom, Tom Brady or after Tom Brady. Um, the next thing I want person I want to credit is Todd Bowles the defensive coordinator, we talked a lot about him last week. Um, He is an absolute genius on defense. I mean, the fact that they were able to only bring their front four, because he didn't blitz at all in this game. I mean, hardly ever did he blitz Patrick Mahomes, but they were able to, again, exploit a weakness that Kansas City had coming into that game, but um, to the degree that they did it, I mean, Patrick Mahomes was running for his life. And not only does he have, I mean, there's only four guys coming at him. But they're, they play at such an elite level that um, it causes um, disruption. And even if he wants to look downfield, even if he's able to scramble around and make absolutely insane throws, um, there's too many guys out in coverage. So it really they really limited um, his possibility of making those plays. Um, With that being said, I want to credit Patrick Mahomes because that may be the greatest two-interception, no-touchdown performance I've ever seen out of a quarterback. I mean, if you just take the eye test alone, those throws were insane, especially the one where he was parallel to the ground um, and he was able to throw that ball in the end zone, his receiver in the face mask. The one where he scrambled left, did some spins, and threw the ball while getting hit um, to Tyree Kill, hit him in the face mask in the end zone. I mean... He did everything he possibly could, and that brings me to Kansas City because sometimes when you have such a great quarterback that can make magic happen, that can scramble around, make big plays, it's almost a liability because you don't necessarily look at your offensive line and say this is something we need to um, build because we don't need it. We have a guy that can overcome that. When on the contrary, it's almost even better to build an offensive line around him because then you're not forcing him to make those insane throws. You can have him sit in the pocket and um, be even more successful. Because looking throughout the regular season, if you look at Kansas City, Patrick Mahomes is only sacked 22 times. That's 3.7% of all snaps for Kansas City on offense. So with that alone, you would say they have a pretty good offensive line, right? But that's not necessarily true because he the, the he was pressured 22% of the time which is 16th in the NFL and he was they were ninth in QB hits so that's middle of the pack it's not horrible but if you compare that to the fact that he was only the only players sacked more than him were Tom Brady Philip Rivers and Big Ben it shows that it wasn't necessarily the offensive line that kept him protected and prevented sacks it was more of his ability to run around and deliver good passes while getting hit because um, you look at the other three teams that I just mentioned um, Tampa Bay with Tom Brady the Colts with Philip Rivers and the Steelers with Big Ben Colts were 31st in um, QB pressures 29th for Tampa Bay and the Steelers were 27th so they were the best of the best in protecting their quarterback and for those teams, their offensive line did do the job in the passing game in protecting their quarterback, and that's what limited the amount of sacks that teams got against them. Also to note to note is that Kansas City was f- the fourth least blitzed team in the NFL. So again, teams were not blitzing them very often because if you do that with a quarterback like Patrick Mahomes, he's going to make you pay for it. But a lot of those teams weren't able to... Um, Come after him with just their front four, like Tampa Bay was able to do in the Super Bowl, and um, utilize that weapon of minimizing the people you're coming, you're, you're sending at Patrick Mahomes to allow for more guys to be out in coverage and um, minimize his uh, his weapons outside of that. The next thing I want to talk about is the great genius decision by Andy Reid to call those timeouts late in the first half when the score was 7-3. to there was a one-score game, and there was about 57 seconds left on the clock. Tampa Bay had the ball. First down, they run the ball at the middle with Leonard Fournette. They get no yards. Kansas City calls a timeout. Okay, a lot of teams would do that, right? You want to get the ball back, give your quarterback another shot at um, getting some more points on the board. But the second down play, they threw the ball to Chris Godwin. He got eight yards, setting up a third and two and Kansas City calls another timeout. Okay, I can see the fact that it's third down. If you just get one more stop, you can get the ball back, and you'll be in a good situation to um, maybe kick a field goal, maybe even drive down the field and score a touchdown. But what you have to acknowledge is who's on the other side of the field. This isn't a rookie quarterback. This isn't a bum. This is Tom Brady. And all you have to do is watch the game two weeks ago against Green Bay. What did Tom Brady do? Well, he delivered a deep shot to Scotty Miller and put up another touchdown before the end of the half, continuing the momentum that they already had coming into the first half and now carrying even more to the second half. But no, Andy Reid, and he's been known to be aggressive, um, he made that decision, and that is a big part of what cost them in the long run. Not to mention the fact that they were not... Ne- Unable to make any uh, play call changes, any adjustments to what Tampa Bay was doing coming into this, out of halftime. I don't know what they talked about, but they almost looked even worse com- in the second half compared to the first half. I mean, Tampa Bay run ran cover two all game. It's a, where you bring the front four and you leave more guys out in coverage. Um, and the only way to really get out of that is to run the ball because it leaves holes open in the run game. Um... But no, of course not. Kansas City throws the ball around in the first half. Out of the 107 yards that they uh, ran in that game, Patrick Mahomes was credited for 33 of that from scrambling around, which were um, passing play calls. Uh, And then if you look at the first half alone, they only ran the ball outside of Mahomes six times. So you'd think coming out of halftime they would say, okay, I know we're down a couple scores. But we need to run the ball, make Todd Bowles, make adjustments to that, and open up our pl- our offense so we're able to throw down the field. But now, of course, Kansas City decides to continue to shoot the ball, and at the end of the day, they scored nine points. They didn't score a single touchdown. And everyone that wants to say, oh my God, the refs won the game for Tampa Bay, blah, 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 there's 11 penalties, The vast majority of those calls were the right call to make. Kansas City was sloppy. And outside of the Tyron Matthew interception that got a back, that's the only one I really have a problem with. Um, Even if you give them that one, you get that interception back. Maybe you score a touchdown. It's really not going to change the outcome of that game. Um, Tampa Bay was the better team on Sunday. They had the best game of the year. Kansas City had their worst game of the year. And the score speaks for itself. Tampa Bay won that game. They are Super Bowl champions. With all that being said, I want to acknowledge whether or not maybe these teams were overlooked or underlooked coming into this game, because if you look at Tampa Bay, who did they beat in the playoffs? They They beat Drew Brees and the New Orleans Saints, a team that is year in and year out in the playoffs, always considered one of the best teams in the NFL. Then they go to Lambeau and beat Aaron Rodgers and the Packers, again, another team that is always in the playoff hunt. And then you look at Kansas City. Who did they beat? They beat Chicago, uh, Cleveland and they beat Buffalo. And all due respects to those two teams because they are loaded, they are very talented, and they deserved everything that they got this season. Um, they're one. Of, they're, they're two of the teams that I would say have the brightest future going forward. But Cleveland hadn't had a playoff win in twenty five years. Nineteen ninety five was their last playoff win until twenty twenty. Buffalo even worse they hadn't won a playoff game since 1994 that's 26 years so no matter how good they are this year they had very little playoff experience they were quite frankly out of their league when you're matching up against the reigning super bowl champions in kansas city and i think with all that being said i really do think that kansas city was um overrated coming into the super bowl i think a lot of people gave them too much credit. And that's why they were the favored team. And on the flip side, I think Tampa Bay was underrated. They had all the talent in the world. They had Tom Brady. And really, you can't calculate the impact that Tom Brady makes in those big games. Um, So what does that say going forward? What does that say about next year? The fact that Tampa Bay was able to make a Super Bowl run in year one of having Tom Brady with no offseason and all that being said, I would think that they should be the favorite team of the NFC to go back to the Super Bowl. I do not think Kansas City is. I think there are too many good teams in the AFC that are young, hungry, and are going to challenge them now that we almost have a a recipe to beat Kansas City unless they make adjustments in the offseason, unless they bring in some offensive linemen, some corners that can um, really take the pressure off of Patrick Mahomes to play hero ball. Um, If they don't do that, then I can't say... With confidence that i expect kansas city to go back to the super bowl next i want to talk about a particular quarterback that has made his way into the news lately and that is andrew luck there are reports there are text messages that have implied his interest in possibly coming back and joining the indianapolis colts we talked about him a little bit earlier in that the fact that their offensive line is top of the league um if you look at their defense they have one of the best defenses in the league so it's interesting to note or look at at least the possibility of if he does return and join this team what situation would he get himself involved in we look at their roster their offensive line has braden smith mark Klowinsky, ryan kelly quinton nelson who's arguably the best offensive line in the league right now by far the best guard in the league Anthony Castanzo just retired, so you're going to have to fill that void at left tackle, which you absolutely can do, at least in free agency, with all the cap room that they have. I believe they're top three in um, available cap room. You look at tight ends, they have Jack Doyle. You have Morale Cox and Trey Burton, who showed out last year. So you have a really deep tight end group. You have a defense that has Justin Houston, who even in his age is still a viable pass rusher. DeForest Buckner, Grover Stewart, uh, Darius Leonard, one of the best linebackers in the league. Um, you look at their secondary, they have Rocky sin, um, Julian Black, Blackman, Kerry Willis, Kenny Moore, Xavier Rhodes, who even as a veteran player, um, has proven himself this year in this system to be a, uh, starter in this league. Um, and then you bring back Malik Hooker who came up, who's, who who, who had an injury last year and is going to be coming off of that this year. Um, which would be a big piece to come back to that defense that's already one of the best in the league. You look at their running backs, they have Jonathan Taylor, a rookie who throughout the year proved to get better and better after each game he had. Naeem Hines, who is a good complementary piece in the passing game. And then, of course, Mar- Marlon Mack, who if they bring him back this year, he just came off an injury. Um, he was their starter before this year. Uh, if he can come back, that would e- add an, even m- more to this run game. And then you look at the receiver. So this is where it's a little on the lesser side of this team. You have Michael Pittman, who's a rookie. I think he played well last year. Um, I see him as a number two receiver, so you still need to add in another weapon. And in this free agency, in this draft, there's a lot of guys that you can have available to you. I th- in my mock draft, I have them taking a receiver. Um, you have Zach Pascal who's a pretty solid number three guy. And T.Y. Hilton, I think they're going to let go into free agency. He's a little bit past his prime. Um, So, yeah, I have, if Andrew Luck comes back to this team, I mean, he's got a loaded roster. um, A roster that I believe is completely different from when he left. He uh, played the entire 2016 season. He was injured for the entire 2017 season. And then he retired at the end of 20, before the start of the 2018 season. So let's just compare those two two years, the 2016 season, his last year playing, and the situation that he would be getting into now in 2020. In 2016, their offensive line was ranked 25th in the NFL. Horrible. Compare that to now, they are ranked 7th. And in my mind, they are the best offensive line in the league. You look at their defense. 2016, they were ranked 28th. Bottom of the barrel. Horrible. Now they're 5th. Again, one of the best defenses in this league. Their scoring offense was 8th in 2016, so not horrible. Again, they had Andrew Luck. Now they're ninth, so it really hasn't changed. Even with him gone, they were, they've were they been able to figure it out. They've had Jacoby Percet for a while, before bringing in Phillip Rivers. And even with an, a veteran quarterback who is was a year away from retiring, they were able to, able to make it work. Their rushing offense was 23rd in 2016, not very helpful for a quarterback, now it's 11th. Their passing offense was 5th in the NFL in 2016, and now it's 11th. So a little bit of downgrade there, which is completely reasonable considering that they had Phillip Rivers. Um, I think he did a good job last year, but obviously that's not the answer, because it didn't. They ended up getting bounced in the first round of the playoffs. So now you're You're Andrew Luck. you retired because your offensive line's horrible. You don't have a defense. You're really the only reason that that team was relevant um, for a few years there. You retire. You leave the situation. You're done with it. And this team has completely turned it around. They fired Chuck Pagano. They brought in Frank Reich. And I think this is really the perfect situation for him to come back into. And if it does happen, which I don't believe it will, I wouldn't put my money on it. But if he does come back, if there's any shot he does, where would that leave Carson Wentz? Because we do know that the top two teams interested in him are the Colts and the Bears. We know Philly is looking to move off of him. They may keep him, it's possible, but from what I've heard, I don't they're looking to move off of him, and they're looking to move off of him quickly. So if Indy stays gets Andrew Luck back. Maybe a third team jumps in here and makes an offer if they get desperate, if they really need a, an upgrade at quarterback, but I have him being left with Chicago. And they are there are three trade rumors that I've heard about, and we're going to look at every, all of them right now. The first one being Chicago getting Carson Wentz, and in return the Eagles get a 2021 second-round pick, sixth-round sixth, sixth round pick, a 2022 third-round pick, and Nick Foles. Now, I think Philly is looking to get at least a first-round pick. I think they want two first-round picks, which I think is too high of an asking price. I don't think they're going to get that. Again, maybe a team gets desperate, but as of right now, if they want to move off him now, I don't think that's the package that they're going to get in return. And in this situation, they don't get any first-round picks. So I don't see this deal being made. But um, the second offer is Carson Wentz to Chicago. In return, they get a twenty twenty one second second-round pick, a 22-22 third-round pick, Nick Foles, and Tariq Cohen. Now, this one's my least favorite of the three. Why? Because, again, they don't get a first-round pick, and instead they get Tariq Cohen, which, if you look at Philadelphia, they have Miles Sanders, they have Boston Scott. The reason that they were so bad was not the run game. It wasn't their depth at running back. Maybe they can add another guy, and it'll help but is Tariq Cohen really going to be the answer? He's great in the receiving game. He's a good uh, change of pace back. He can punt return. He can kick return. He can do all that. I'm not trying to discredit him, but if you look at like a team like Philly, I don't really think adding a piece like Tariq Cohen is going to change anything. So that brings us to our third offer. And in that one, we have Carson Wentz and a 2021 third-round pick going to Chicago. In return, they get a 2021 first-round pick, so there's your first-round pick, a 2022 fourth-round pick, and Nick Foles. Now, this is the smallest of the packages that you're going to get, but you do get your first-round pick. You still get Nick Foles, which in this situation, it would be his third tenure with the Eagles. He's had success with the team, with the organization. I think he can be a good guy to bring in and possibly start, mentor, Jalen Hurts, if they think he's got potential, um, which I think he does. Whether he's going to be their future quarterback or not, I think he has talent. And if this all does happen, uh, something interesting would happen. The first overall selection and the second overall selection in the 2016 NFL draft would both be in the NFC North. Jared Goff just got traded to the Lions. And if Carson Wentz gets traded to the Bears... It's just an interesting storyline going into the season, because I don't think anyone would have predicted that those two guys, after getting drafted number one and number two overall, would be in the situation today. Last but certainly not least, I want to talk about UFC two hundred and fifty eight. So we're finally moving off of football. We're going to talk some UFC. The fight is tonight. It's got a great main card. Um, it's going to be interesting, exciting, and I want to break down for you guys my top five fights. And my picks for each one. So we'll start at number five. Macy Barber. The underdog at plus 105 against Alexa Grasso. Minus 125. My pick would be Barber. She, she's coming off of her first loss on her career um, last year. I think she's going to bounce back in this fight. And continue to be an up and coming fighter in the female div- division. Um, so I have her by second round knockout. Um, over Grasso. At number four we have... Makai Patillo, the underdog at plus 145 against Julian Marquez at minus 170. He's the favorite, and he's my pick. I'm taking Marquez, not only because he gave me a shout-out on Twitter a few years back, but because I think he really is a talented fighter. He's coming off of some losses. He's coming off of some injuries, Um, and I think this is his time to bounce back from that and um, get back in the win column. So I'm taking Marquez by second-round knockout as well. At number three, we have Ricky Simon versus Brian Keller. Keller is the underdog at plus 200. Simon is the favorite at minus 240, and I'm taking Simon by unanimous decision. I think these guys are both really talented. They're both veteran fighters. They've had a a lot of fights under their belt, but after that Ray Borg fight, I think Simon really impressed me, and I can see him doing a lot more of that in this fight. Um, He's got more to his arsenal, and I see him coming out on top after three rounds. At number two, Of course, we have Kevin Gastelum, the favorite at minus 220 against Ian Heinish, the underdog, at plus 180. Again, both of these guys are really good fighters. Um, I just don't think Heinish is quite at the point of his career to have me um, with confidence say that he's a better fighter than Kevin Gastelum. Listen, Kevin is still one of the best fighters in the middleweight division. Um, He's coming off some losses, but if you look at those fights, I mean, one was... The title match against Adia which is a really good fight. Um, another to Darren Till. Till moved up to middleweight. Again, another really good fight. Um, it just didn't go his way in those fights. But that's not to say that he's still not a top three, four fighter in this division. And I think he's going to bounce back and get a win against Ian Heinish. I want to say knockout. I really do. Because I think Gastelum can do that. I just don't see Heinish getting knocked out. So I have it by split decision going to Kevin Gastelum. And at number one, of course, the main event, Kamaru Usman versus Gilbert Burns. Uh, Usman, of course, is the favorite at minus 270. Burns is the underdog at plus 220. If you look at these guys' last five fights, Usman has beaten Masvidal, Covington, Woodley, Raphael, Damian Maia, all by unanimous decision, with the exception of Covington getting knocked out in the fifth round. If that went five rounds... It was going to be the same outcome. He's just had the ability to draw out these fights and dominate most of them. And I can see that happening again tonight against Gilbert Burns. I have a lot of respect for Gilbert Burns. His last fights, Woodley, unanimous decision. Damian Maya again, those two guys, both on each resume, so you can pretty much cross those out. He did knock out Maya in the first round, but that was just a stylistic matchup uh, mismatch. Gunnar Nelson, unanimous. Uh, Conchenko unanimous and then Mike Davis he submitted in the second round so it's really not a bad resume either but if you compare those two clearly Usman has had the better fighters he's wiped out the division um, and I see him doing that again tonight with all due respect to Gilbert Burns I think he's an insanely good fighter he's probably the second mm, I put him at fourth best in the division Um, I'd still put Covington and Masvidal above him Uh, I think he's a couple more fights away from perfecting his game and um I see him getting this title being the middleweight champion down the road but I just don't think today's that day so uh, my pick is Usman um and if he does come out on top what would be next who would be his next challenger for the belt I got three picks my pick my personal pick would be Jorge Masvidal I think if you give him a full training camp some months to prepare and get a game plan to how to beat Usman I think that fight would go completely different instead of just filling in a week before um, because really he put up a fight the first two rounds. After that, it kind of fell off, and Usman took control um, and dominated. But again, it was just one week. Masvidal got tired early on in that fight, which is a credit to not having a, tr- a full camp to prepare. Um, the fact that he was able to make that p- weight cut um, in just one week was insane. Um, so I want to give him another shot in that rematch. My probable pick would be Colby, Colby Covington. If you look at their last fight, um, it was probably the biggest challenge for Usman. I think Covington has come the closest to beating him. Again, he got knocked out in the fifth round. But after that, he backed it up with a fifth round knockout against Woodley. Um, something that Usman couldn't do. So if you get that rematch going, I can see that being very exciting and a possible challenge for Usman. And then my sleeper pick would be Hamzat Chmeyev, uh, this guy's 9-0. and He has dominated his last nine nine fights. It hasn't even been close. My only knock on him is that he hasn't had a top 10 fight or a top 5 competitor um, to match up against. We haven't really seen him continue that with um, a higher level of competition. So I still think he's a couple fights away from getting a title shot. But if Dana White does give him the, the chance, I can see uh, I don't know. I think that'd be a really interesting matchup. I don't know how he would handle Usman. I don't see how Usman, what Usman would do to handle him. Um, so that'd be my sleeper pick. And with all that being said, I cannot wait for the fight tonight. Um, I'll be watching. I hope everyone's watching out there. Um, and that wraps up this episode of if the cleat fits. I hope everyone has a great week. Hope everyone has a great night and I will see you soon.